This episode of History on Fire is brought to you by Luminary Media. Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, a writer, and a martial artist. He shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. a history on fire. Okay, the man himself join us today, Mr. Dan Carlin. Very, very welcome. How are you, Dan? I'm okay. Thank you for having me on, pal. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. So, Dan Carlin, the author, check that out, writing books now. Tell us a little bit about this book. Let's just cut to the chase and jump into it. Um, Everybody, you know, there's been lots of people who have been wanting to see your work in print. Now it's happening. What is this work looking like? What are the chapters about? What are the main topics or anything else you feel like adding to that? Well, you're right. People have been asking for just straight up transcripts for years and, and, or to translate the transcripts into other languages. So hopefully this is better than straight up transcripts. Um, we were talking with some publishers a while back about books and people have been bringing this up for a long time. And they said, uh, you know, you must have a lot of material to work from. I mean, it should be pretty simple to put together something. And then they said, well, what are you interested in? Go look at the material, see what you've kind of talked about. And are there any recurring patterns in your, in your subject matter? And it became like an inkblot test to try to figure out, yes, what really am I interested in? And I find out I'm interested in like the destruction of civilization, the recurrence of horrible. I mean, it was one of those inkblot tests where you're not sure you like what you see. (laughs) (laughs) This book, this book is essentially the, the alternative title for it was and they lived happily ever after. And, <laughs> I love but, that. <laughs> but, yes, but it has to be a nonfiction book, and I wasn't sure that would meet the criteria. No, no rainbows and unicorns in it. It's very typically uh, my kind of work, but. It's one of those kinds of, it's a Dan Carlin thing, which means instead of giving answers, it asks questions. Right. And they're the kind of questions that I think are the sort that have always been the deep questions that humankind has, you know, your great philosophers like to, they have, you know, more highfalutin ways of asking some of them, but they're the sorts of issues that, that, that history, for example, the study of the past or just living a nice long life sort of tends to prompt in people and they're wrapped up in these stories. And so we tell these stories and within them, woven through them, are these questions and these sorts of lenses to view things through that I hope makes us think about the times we live in now and maybe, you know, the times ahead of us. Absolutely. And you go through, I mean, the title itself is pretty funny, right? You have like so much for the living happily ever after, right? The end is always near. Whoa. I wanted I wanted the full Jim Morrison line. I wanted the future's uncertain and the end is always near. And it was both long and copywritten. Uh, so we didn't go there. Unfortunately, but, but the Jim Morrison autobiography, no one here gets out alive. Right? That's right. I, that's... But I thought I thought it was a perfect way to describe the way life has always been. And I think 
we consider ourselves a little immune from that long-standing pattern. And the book sort of reminds us, uh, well, look, things have happened like this. I, I, I look at it as a choice. Either things are going to happen the way they've always happened before, or they're not going to happen the way they've always happened before. And I find either one of those, you know, roads, that fork in the road, either direction is fascinating to me. And if you if you look at some of the patterns in human history with things like epidemics, for lack, you know, just, just to choose one, uh, all, all we would have to have is one modern epidemic of the sort that our ancestors in earlier times dealt with relatively frequently, and it would be a challenge for our collective psyches. I mean, what would we do if we lost a third of the population in a couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. Right, But, it, but it's happened to, to smaller groups of human beings often. And I think that's one of the key things that's so different today is that, you know, when we turn back to the past, we're looking at civilizations that have not been independent because, of course, there was always contact, there was always trade, there was always, there was always a web there, but not nearly as interconnected as it is today, where today we truly live in a global world where what happens in one place has a huge repercussion on what happens everywhere else rather quickly. That wasn't always the case. So you could have the apocalypse breaking out in one country and two countries down, they wouldn't necessarily be aware of it. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't, you know. Now we, we actually brought this up in the book. We were talking about uh, the idea of we called them, I think, localized dark ages. Yeah, exactly. Where, where you know, if you think about a power grid and you think about uh, uh, China being the power center for Asia, if China goes down in the old days when China's not connected to the Americas or not connected to Western Europe or whatever, if China goes down, the whole region goes dark. That's the equivalent of their whole world going dark. But if it happened today, would it be like a local power outage where the rest of the world, you know, you don't lose knowledge because it may, it may burn up or disappear in China, but it's stored elsewhere. It's on cloud servers in Ireland. And, you know, so, so that was one of the questions that, that arose in, in that fork in the road, you know, either things will be as they've always been, or they won't. One of the possibilities in the, I won't side of the road was that, well, these conditions that we live under now will prevent something like a global dark age from occurring through something like redundancy, for lack of a better word. In which way redundancy? Can you explain that a little bit? Sure, sure. In, in a redundancy in the sense that, that let's just talk about all of humankind's knowledge on uh, computers. Well, they're not just in a place like China. If China were to go down, they're in multiple locations. So in order to have a truly global dark age now, you would have to go down in all those locations. Where to have a dark age a thousand years ago, you would just have to go down in one of their major nodes of operation, you know, in, in, in regional nodes. For Absolutely. Lack of a word. Absolutely. So in that sense, well, I guess let's jump first in the past, the, the topics that you tackle in this book, and then we can jump into what would be the, you know, there's a long list of existential threats for the future, which ones, which ones of those are the ones that are more truly existential versus a bump in the road. So let's jump first, I guess, in the book itself. You divided it in a few chapters. Um, I mean, and a lot of those chapters are clearly go back to what you have, you know, a lifetime of your work, you know, something that some of your early podcasts, you know, your faithful listeners or those who have bought your earlier episodes will recognize some of these topics, anything from the Bronze Age collapse that you touch way back in the day 
to, you know, even more recent ones like the old school toughness theme or, you know, let, let's, I guess, give people a bit of a list of some of the key ones that you tackle in this book. Well, so first of all, some of these things, for example, like we talked about the Bronze Age collapse in the podcast, right when the podcast was new. It's one of those subjects I would love to revisit and give the four or five hour treatment to, you know, <laughs> because it's so great. And back then we didn't know we could do four or five right, hour shows. Um, so so there's a and plus, to be honest, actually, a lot has come out since way back then. That's a long time ago now. And so so we were able to update that information and actually change some of the things that we had said in the earlier one based on new info. Um, the Bronze Age collapse is one of my favorites, though, because we included it in this story as a way to diagram another complex society like our own that that maybe had, among other possible things that might have brought it down, a systems collapse, where the very complexity and reliance in the society on various rather precarious things may have led to a general outage over time. And it's the sort of thing that you don't have to be a genius to look at our society and go, hmm, we're pretty complex. We rely on some, some basic systems. And so it's it's a fascinating look at another time period and going, could something like that happen to us too? And th then there's two chapters that seem a little out of place, but I don't think they are. And they're the ones on toughness, like you said, and mm -hmm. child rearing. Yeah, those are the very first two, right? Right. Yeah. And the, yes, and the point of having those was was to bring in the element. This is, the, by the way, this is not a, a, a book where everything is written to all fit together. They're kind of vignettes. And those two topics were brought in to talk about how human beings might respond to these challenges. And so the toughness question I felt fit into this because I have a feeling like a coyote population, we might find that as our world got harsher or tougher or what have you, we might as well. And so this might be part of the adaptive process. You know, human beings always pride themselves on our adaptability. Uh, and, and we talk oftentimes about, you know, the soft times we live in now or the relatively, you know, non-calloused hands times we live in now. Uh, would we change if the conditions, could we change to deal with more difficult circumstances? So we deal with that. And then the next one about child rearing is of a similar vein. How you would, you know, if, if you live in a time period where you need to have Apaches instead of 17th century uh, you know, French uh, uh, bourbon royalty type times. I mean, I have a feeling that the parenting would just be different. When you go read about how kids were raised in earlier eras, you go, well, to us, it looks abusive, but that might have been how you raised a person who could deal with those kinds of circumstances. So these were both about the human, the plasticity, if you will, of human beings and our ability to maybe adapt to some of these circumstances. Because I think even if you think about the worst cases, how about World War Three? If there's a nuclear war, does that mean humans are wiped off the face of the planet? Or does that mean you are bombed back to the Stone Age? Or, I mean, so what kind of circumstances are human beings then going to have to adapt to? So I felt like it tied into those questions because that's the ultimate end game, right? The, the plague that strikes is interesting to talk about, but it's the human beings and how they respond afterwards that's going to be key, right? Well, and I think that's why those, I mean, even in popular media, when you see shows like... Uh... The Walking Dead or something like that. And part of the appeal of those post-apocalyptic shows is precisely the what would a person who has experienced what I've experienced growing up, who has used to this kind of society, this technology, everything that I'm familiar with, how would that person respond when suddenly 
whole society breaks down around them and the rules of the game change entirely. What kind of moral choices would people make? What kind of, you know, practical choices as far as being able to scratch out a living? What kind, you know, everything, because in that sense it's recognizable. You know, you're not talking about a society 3,000 years ago where you're like, were they truly like us? Would somebody, you pop me in 3,000 years ago? Is it really representative? Can we relate? You know, if you say 10 years into the future, you know you can relate because you grew up watching the same cartoons and having the same opportunities, but the entire game has been changed. And so there's probably that fascination in popular media for this kind of stuff because it addresses some very real questions in that regard, which is kind of what you are playing with. I'm actually glad you brought up the popular media thing because I can't decide... So, so let me throw something at you because I think it's rather interesting because I don't think ever in human history have people had a chance to explore through storytelling and fantasy and all that so many of these kind of themes, right? I think we probably think about the end of the world or civilization or any of these things that I'm talking about in the book. We probably think about that more than humankind has ever thought about it before. And yet there's a part of me, and I think we address this in the book, that talks about how it also creates a sense of unreality about it, though, like it's fantasy, like it's so. So, I mean, I think when we'll talk about something like uh, a plague and what it might be like to have a disease like smallpox, but a brand new one with no resist, you know, arrive today. I think we would conceive of how that would turn out in a movie sort of sense, right? That we've been sort of trained to think about it that way. And I'm not sure that that doesn't in a way sort of desensitize us to the whole thing. Make it make all this stuff seem so fantastic that in, in, in a sense that, I mean, you just can't, it seems so, so dramatic and like a, like a movie that you, you fail to represent and understand that not only is this, uh, not fantastic, but it's happened many times in the past. And unless things change from the pattern we've had since caveman times, it'll happen again. And so I wonder if it doesn't make us a little bit too comfortable with the idea. <laughs> right, where you, we entertain the possibility, but it's possibility like with a movie you watch on a Saturday night. Not like right, I, I think about it all the time so often that it's, uh, I'm bored with it now as a topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the end of, of the course. world, bah, it's old hat. I find those uh, type of shows extremely, uh, I can't say relaxing because they are anything but relaxing, but there's definitely that effect where suddenly, you know, you're there worrying about uh, zombies coming to eat you or you can't have clean water and suddenly you turn off the TV and you look around and you have your refrigerator stocked with food and you have a shower and you, have, and you go like, ah, life is not so bad. Well, you know, I do think about it's my wife says I stare out in the car window and I look at the hills and I always like in my head turn the clock back and wonder what all this scenery looked like 100 years ago, 200 years yep. ago, 300 years ago, whatever it might be. And you do wonder about, you know, there in the Avengers movie where Thanos was the bad guy and he was going to wipe out half the population and it puts you in this tough question about whether or not it's a good thing or a yeah, bad course. thing that he's doing <laughs> this, course. right? And and I I feel the same way about some of these things in the book we talked about. For example, one of the things we discussed are ways that humankind might have lower capabilities than what we possess today. So we're not raised to think that way. If you, if, if if we couldn't uh, if we couldn't, for example, put satellites into space a hundred years from now, would you consider that humankind had regressed, 
or or not. And and so we had to define what the word progress meant and all these things when we were talking about things like the civilizational stock market, right? What what does it mean to say that society is is uh, more capable or less capable than it used to be? It depends on, it depends on your terms, right? Mm-hmm. So we had asked this question about capabilities to sort of get you to think about the idea, well, certainly if we can't do something that our grandparents could do, we've regressed. But what if, for example, the reason you can't do what they can do is because you don't have as much energy because we've cut down on energy use because it's going to make sure that we can exist long term. So so who's better off? The fact that they could do more, but they had to use more energy to do so and it ruined their future or our grandchildren could do less, but it gives them a long term viability. So we were kind of examining some of these trade offs. You might get a dark age voluntarily for the long term good of everyone. Who knows? Well, and that's one of those topics that's incredibly interesting because, you know, the economic model that we have all been raised in is uh, constant growth, more is better, and infinite growth, which, by the way, is completely impossible in nature, in a finite system. You know, there's only so much that you can figure out ways to improve how you tap into resources and technology. You can definitely do that, and we have been doing it. You know, we have made tremendous strides. But eventually, in a finite system, you're going to hit some spots where there's only so far you can push. And so the whole idea that more is always better doesn't really seem to have a parallel in nature, where eventually you do hit some limits and actually, you know, if you're hitting a population that's growing too much, it will inevitably lead to a decline, whether through diseases, through starvation, or through other things, whether, you know, and so the whole fact the whole factor is uh, is a very interesting one because it's uh, you know long term survival versus this belief in constant uh, unchecked growth. I mean, there was something I think it was Bhutan as a nation that had that you know how most nations measure their economic growth via the gross national product, and uh, Bhutan had this concept of gross national happiness which was absolutely hilarious and and even brilliant in some way, where it's like, yes, of course, a part of a solid economy is definitely part of national happiness, but it's not the only factor. And there are many, many other things that sometimes may clash with the numbers keep climbing up. The numbers may climb it up, that doesn't help you if you are cutting down the trees that allow you to breathe. You know, it's like there's more to it than pure economy. And so it was, uh, you know, I find that an extremely interesting concept that we probably, as humanity, we, we do need to figure out what it means. Well, yeah, how do you define progress, right, and civilizational capabilities and the trade-offs? And, and listen, I think that that's one of the things where you talk about, you know, if things stay as they always are, we're in trouble, has to do with the way we treat the environment around us. I mean, if you look at the way humankind has always been, go back to times before cities were around, human beings can be a little hard on their immediate surroundings. And if you're, oh, a, yeah. nomad, if you're a nomadic hunter-gatherer type, well, you just leave that area for a while, go somewhere else. Most of the stuff you had is pretty biodegradable. By the time you come back, you can make that work if the population levels aren't too high. But you take that tendency and you take the numbers of people and the space and everything and, well, create the modern world like we are now. And we still generally are kind of hard on our immediate environment. Okay, well, that's a human pattern that has obviously infinite problems associated with it once you hit a critical mass. I would love to find out some of the experts' ideas on what the optimal 
sustainable human population is. And of course, they're going to say, well, it depends on, you know, our living standards and how much energy. But I mean, assuming we live the way we live today, how many people can get away on planet Earth with this and have it be OK? Did you say, well, one million people could live like this on the planet. We could be sustainable forever. would have clean water. I don't know. But that to me is, I mean, what's the what's the um, the, the holding capacity of planet Earth at our current levels of uh, de- degrading? What would you say? Degrading our sur- immediate surroundings on a yeah. collective level? <laughs> yeah, because I mean, there's a point where if your economic growth is tied to poisoning the very things that make life possible, then clearly you got a problem, you know, because you have uh, the money in the bank keeps going up, but your the things that will keep you alive long term is not. And actually, there's an inverse relation. There was actually, I don't know if you ever read it, there was a book years ago, um, Jared Diamond did a book called Collapse. Oh, sure. Remember that one where he kind yeah, of yeah, went yeah, through... And it was fascinating because he went through a series of civilizations throughout history that have basically committed ecological suicide, where for one reason or another, and the reasons were very different from one another, but for one reason or another, either because of population growth or some technological issues or an inability to respond to changes in the climate or things like that, they all rose, rose, got bigger, got more powerful, got progressively greater and bigger and eventually hit a spot and collapsed pretty badly. Now, because of the what we were talking about earlier, these collapses were usually regional. They would extend only so many miles. Clearly, that's not the scenario that we're facing today, where we probably have the ability to postpone or even avoid some regional collapses. But then the big question is, can we postpone or avoid the more global one where suddenly there is no other place to migrate to because you have hit, you know, this is a collapse that hit the whole system. And that was one of the things that Diamond was toying with. You know, he was showing all these examples anywhere from uh, Vikings in Greenland to the Anasazi in the Southwest uh, to the Maya to, you know, it's going through all these different civilization and showing how extremely smart people who develop highly complicated civilizations nonetheless weren't always able to figure out the correct balance between humans and the environment. But see, to me, that is so much more of an obvious point in terms of, of course, that's, I mean, those, I mean, I've read the book, I love it, it's wonderful, but, but mine is a bit more strange than that, because what he's saying makes perfect sense. You can't destroy your environment. You can't over. I mean, I think that's like math to me. Yeah. But I think the philosophical weirdness associated with what we're talking about in the book kind of is sometimes counterintuitive. So, for example, one of the examples I brought up just to be perverse, but I think it I think it, it's it's a perfect like a Twilight Zone type twist on this is we don't know what's going to be the big threat to humanity. So you can't know what you want to have to try to deal with it. For example, an obvious point is don't destroy your environment or you're screwed, which, you know, I think we can all get. But what if it turns out that the modern society that we have that destroys the environment is the only thing that allows you to progress to the point where you create something like a nuclear bomb and a nuclear missile that can then be used against the asteroid that you find out is heading towards your planet that's been on course to hit Earth for a bazillion years. And you know what I'm saying? is that it's, it's, it's funny, but you never know what aspect of, of our civilized world now is going to be what saves us. It's not as easy as just saying, well, 
well, if we'd never if we'd never gotten all industrial, we'd be fine, but we wouldn't have been able to get rid of that meteor heading toward the Earth or the asteroid. Whereas if there's no asteroid, maybe we just poison ourselves to death. That's what, that's what I meant to, about this being a happy book, you know, uh, uh, and then they lived happily ever after. Of course. Book. You're going to walk away feeling good after you read this book. <laughs> but I love the example you brought up because that is a very good one, right? But it's you like... never know, right? What if? How ironic would it be if the polluted modern Earth with these nuclear weapons and these terrible missiles turned out to be the one thing that saved Earth from ultimate, exactly. you know, being treated like the dinosaurs again? <laughs> Which is not out of the realm of possibilities at all. So that's you have to be twisted a little, and the and the and the guys like Jared Diamond are just too smart and educated and right. And people, the, those kind of guys are great, but they can't be twisted like I can be. I have the freedom, being a non-professional, to go into like Rod Serling territory on some of this stuff. Have a little fun with it. Why not? Absolutely. No, the topic the lends is, itself to a little fun, don't you think? And the thing is, yeah, it is fun. But it's also real. You know what I mean? It's like there's your taste for paradox in that regard. It's not just purely something to, you know, crack up and have a few laughs and think how cool it is. The point is, yeah, that is a valid counterpoint that is important to, yes, while you are taking into account the importance, for example, of environmental preservation. Yes, absolutely. That does not mean you can forget about a few other things. And so that's what keeps uh, that's what keeps it interesting in that regard, because otherwise it's almost too easy. If yeah, that's just... right. It's, it's predictable. Or or the question that arises, and we didn't get into this in the book because I had to cut out some questions, Daniele. I was see. They said when I started, somebody told me that a good book should ask a or pose a pose a question and then answer it, or have a point and then support it. And I said, well, then this isn't going to be a good book. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I said because because I don't do that. No, I exactly. Said, I, that no, sounds I anything but your style. No, I ask. I said my audience would be shocked if I did that. I said I ask questions. I said, but the questions are themselves hopefully really interesting. So I had to cut back on the number of questions because the editor said, listen, this is a different medium. You will overwhelm people with questions. But I had a lot more. I mean, to me, to me, the questions are what being here, you know, they talk about the unexamined life, right? Uh, uh, you know, you, the old philosopher, you should have not live the unexamined life, but there's a, a, a collective life, right? All of our lives put together. And some of these deep societal questions are to me, the examined life are part of the examined life of us all put together as a society. And these long-term questions, for example, I mean, I would love to know, can you have a society that's in harmony with nature and sustainable and yet gives us the level of prosperity, you know, that we've become accustomed to. I mean, these are, I didn't, I didn't ask that question in the book, but I think it's implied, right? And I think these are the more, you know, I, I had a conversation with James Burke twice, the science historian, and he's, he, every time he, he blew my, my socks off with, with his, the, 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 the stuff he came up with. But one of the lines he came up with was, we were talking about, I think he called it something like collective brain power. And he talked about how throughout all of human history, we've only been using a tiny percentage of, of people's collective intelligence because only a small number of people around the world were really movers and shakers and readers and writers and people who could participate in the intellectual discussions and the thinkings. And what he said today, the number, the collective brain power is so much more because millions, billions of people are now involved. So we have theoretically a lot more people who can examine these. It's like a giant SETI program using all of people's collective minds to look at these age-old deep questions and try to figure out if collectively we're any better at looking at them than, you know, a few extra smart people back in the old philosopher days were. Well, and that's where 
one thing about the modern world that's interesting is that maybe because the problems that we are tackling are so incredibly big, where, you know, to quote Game of Thrones, uh, Tyrion Lannister is like, people's minds are not made for problems that big. You know, there's that idea where it's like, one thing that despite our the fact that we are more powerful and more able to affect our immediate environments than pretty much anybody ever before, there's one thing that you sense a lot today is uh, is a sense of powerlessness. I mean, when you have like some of the top scientists around telling you some of the very things we are creating, for example, with artificial intelligence, we don't know how to stop it. We don't know where to draw the line from where it's highly beneficial to human beings to when it can turn into an existential threat. That's kind of a problem, you know, because it's like you have this sense that there are forces at play that are bigger than what any one person can figure out, or so it seems at least. Well, and this is the chapter in the book that deals with this, as you're certainly well aware, is the one on nuclear weapons technology and the idea that, you know, can you stop progressing to the next level of weaponry if you decide the weapons you currently have are strong enough? To go back to James Burke, he did a series once called The Day the Universe Changed. And I think it was the very last episode where he's sort of summing up. And he says, if you decide you look down the road and don't like where the innovations and discoveries and knowledge is taking you, can you wall off a branch of knowledge and intelligence because it's too dangerous to go down that road, sort of like the biblical tree, right? And his opinion was you can't because it's all connected like a web and that you'll just find another way around to it as you start connecting the dots, right? So so you'll get a, there'll be a back door to whatever information you're trying to shield the public from. But it does bring up an interesting point, and that's... Uh, you know, whether the seeds of our own destruction aren't inherent in our own, you know, innovation qualities. And he wrote a book called The Axe Maker's Gift that dealt with that too. Are we doomed by our ability to make tools? And what is nuclear weapons but an amazingly powerful tool? And it's worth knowing too that the scientists, to tie it into your your climate change thing, that the scientists were the ones basically, not unanimously, but basically telling the president of the United States, we don't need bigger weapons. And still the regular old human patterns of behavior that go back to caveman times argued the other way. And of course, you know, we built the bigger weapons. And as as someone pointed out, if the public had found out that the president hadn't built the bigger weapons, he'd have been in trouble. Yes, of course. And I mean, it goes back to, you know, this is a theme you explored also on the podcast a bunch of times, you know, way back with uh, when you did uh, Logical Insanity. That in some ways, the very topic of like, you know, there's a very logical reason that can take you to places that are really not healthy. And yet it's the logical conclusion of the game itself. You know, it's sort of the atomic dilemma. It's like, what, do you not use a weapon that can save a whole bunch of your troops? At the same time, that means wiping out hundreds of thousands of people who have absolutely nothing to do with the war you're trying to fight in terms of you know, innocent civilians, kids, elders, people that have clearly, you know, under any other definition would be considered an act of terrorism to go after them. And yet that is the one thing that you can do to save a big chunk of people in your own armed forces and paradoxically, maybe even in the civilian population of another country. Because, I mean, when you consider the US-Japan scenario, the one case where nuclear weapons have been used in a major conflict 
Well, what do you do? You know, you are Truman, and if you don't, you just sentence hundreds of thousands of people to death. And if you do, you just sentence hundreds of thousands of people to death. So you are caught in a situation where there are clearly choices that are less awful than others, but you don't walk away feeling like, yay, I was the hero of the story, and I just saved people, and everything worked out great. There is no outcome in that scenario that, that give you that. But let's make it more complex, because I think powerful man trying to decide whether to use a powerful weapon is, is, is the obvious thing we have in front of us. But there's, but there's layers to it, right? The, the layers are things like, well, uh, what would the public have thought if he hadn't used the weapon, right? In other words, we tend to think it was up to this guy, but he had all sorts of forces operating on him that we kind of, that, that sort of melt away with the passage of time and you don't see them as much anymore. But he may have had a lot fewer options than we give him credit for. In other words, you don't just have to, the, the line some of the scientists used with the nuclear weapons program was that mankind was have was going to have to grow into a new level of greatness, right? Well, it's one thing to say that your top leaders have to do this and you can cross your fingers and hope you get good leaders. It's another thing to say, no, 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 all of us collectively have to grow into greatness. And that's when you say, not only would Truman have had to say, I'm not going to use this bomb because I think it's wrong, but the people that put all the pressure on him, the general public at war would have also had to say, you know what, forget about Pearl Harbor. We don't want him to use that bomb either, and we're happy having more soldiers die to take Japan, you know, uh, with amphibious assaults, then use this. I mean, in other words, at a certain point, you realize, I'm not sure history offers as many off-ramps as we think it does exactly. when we're looking back on it. And I think that's exactly the point of the whole logical insanity concept is the game begins to run itself. You know, the human individual agencies start getting shrunk. There still is but your options are not quite as big as one would think which is there's part... an there's an inertia isn't there yeah. like if you if you let's say let's say tomorrow let's play a little intellectual mind game see mm-hmm. this is what i'm good at danielle it's just the questions <laughs> i have no answers i just have questions um but i mean imagine tomorrow that somehow we all got definitive proof something that everybody would accept 100 percent. you know fox news is trumpeting oh my god we got to do something about climate change today you know um and, and it turns out to be this giant effort like the manhattan project how much could we accomplish, right? In other words, how much could we accomplish without breaking the entire system? A computer friend of mine was talking about why it's so hard to to upgrade the government's old mainframe computers. And he says, because they're so brittle, right? They've been patched so often that if you do anything to them, you risk the whole thing just sort of falling apart on you. You get the feeling like the giant global system that we have in place, not unlike a much more complicated global version of the Bronze Age system, by the way, uh, is something that you just feel like, okay, a giant shock to the system, like we can't grow and measure growth and invest in growth and the entire thing that, that money runs on. We can't do that anymore. Are we flexible enough to do that? Is there enough redundancy built into our system to somehow not just live with that and not have it fall apart, but somehow get back to people leading prosperous lives mm-hmm. in it? I mean, the, these are, the, but to get back to something we talked about earlier, I think these questions are super important to talk about, even without the answers. Just focusing on them shows, if nothing else, the complexity. And I miss that in our current times. I miss the nuance. I miss the complexity. I miss the acknowledgement of how hard these things sometimes are, even from the side you disagree with. So I feel like history has a great way of showing how people get trapped in in exactly 
the gears and 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 uh, 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 zippers should we say zippers of history right trapped in the gears of history exactly right. And I think that's in some way it goes back to why you haven't been up to speed on common sense on your other podcast. Partially is because exactly this question that when you know when you're calling for the need for increased nuance in a context in which is completely factional and you know if if people from political faction A am automatically going they are going to argue one thing I'm going to automatically argue the opposite and we're going to yell at each other across a drone line that's pretty much the exact opposite of what you're advocating you know. And in a context in which that seems to be more and more prevalent, at least in the United States, but I would venture to guess based on what I've seen that is not unique to the United States, then there's an issue. Because if solutions come from uh, dialogue and willingness to engage with complexity and nuance and, and it is kind of a balancing act, and instead what becomes progressively more common is the... Uh, let's blame the other side and they are clearly the ones who are 110 percent at fault on every single issue and you know if they say the sun is out i'm going to say that no it, there is no such thing as the sun well then we got a problem because then you know it, it would be hard to figure things out if we are all on the same page and we agree to the same rules let alone when that's not the case and you know i i don't want to romanticize the past because i think people forget and I'm just old enough to remember how divided the country was around the Watergate era sure. and stuff. It, 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 I read newspaper articles written by kids today talking about how it was, you know, so much more. Uh, the, the, you know, it, it, uh, I guess what I'm saying is it's, it's, it wasn't the way that I've been reading about. It was very similar to the way things are now. And people and, you know, you had the Vietnam uh, people. I mean, it was, it's hard to describe. Right. But it wasn't that different from the way things are now. Plus, you add domestic bombings and all that kind of stuff. It was a heavy duty time. I think the differences, though, and this is where when you brought up common sense, uh, for those of you who don't know, because it's been a long time, it was a political current events podcast I did and still may do. Um, but but I, I think when you talk about something like that, you're talking about looking at the things that have changed since Watergate and whether or not that's impacted the situation. So, for example, watching a, a democratic republic like ours uh, try to deal with social media. Watching China try to deal with social media is something that you almost, as a fan of history, want to sit back and watch if it didn't affect your life so much. It's fascinating to see how modern technology and tools in the hands of everyday people, including weapons in the hands of everyday people that are rel relatively powerful sometimes, it's interesting watching us try to adapt and things are happening so quickly and continually that even if you manage to adapt and those are long shots i think to begin with things change on you again so i think we're seeing something historic here that's different from what we've seen before and you may have seen it before so people will talk about how the industrial revolution put pressure on things right and changed things and and stretched societies and broke down old patterns and destroyed ways of life and all you know it's it's a birthing period to a new generation this is the most i think traumatic and dangerous and stressful birth to a new era we've ever had. 
and and I don't know where it's going. I mean, j- just take the tiniest, tiniest little element that's only one part of the whole thing, the whole robotics replacing low-wage workers. Mm-hmm. I mean, a hundred years ago, robotics replacing low-wage workers would have been enough to topple society, and it's just one little teeny tiny little bit yep. of the stresses and challenges that we're facing. So there's a part of me that used to be able, I think, to do a halfway decent job. I always used to just grade myself against other people, right? A halfway decent job compared to those people um, uh, on analyzing current events, um, bringing some context to those kind of things. But I really feel, and I feel like this is decades in the making, but things are speeding up. I feel like we're in such unusual times uh, that I don't know how even really intelligent, really with it, really in touch people could say for any sort of, with any sort of certainty what they see and what's going on. And so I think analysis is a really weird thing to try to pull off in this kind of climate. Does that make sense? It is, at the same time, your approach, the asking questions more than bludgeoning people on the head with, hey, this is the correct answer. There probably is no better way to tackle exactly what you are describing. That because the situation is so highly complex and the answers are few and far between, at least the reliable ones, let then, me ask you a hard question that, sure. that's been the thing that's killed me in trying to, I tried to record an episode multiple times. W- what if we need better people? What and if I don't mean aren't. better pe- I don't mean better leaders. I mean better citizens. Yeah, that's great. What if there aren't though? Okay, but, I mean, but 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 I think but I think this is the key. I mean, I think you get to this question of the informed citizenry again and and how much and and truthfully, I mean, I've been examining things like changes in voting patterns when you add different people to voting roles. I mean, I've been looking at the, you know, Rome is the obvious example, but you look at different systems and try to figure out how they try to maintain levels of an informed citizenry. And then I try to deal with another variable, which is are the times that we're living in of increasing complexity that requires more from an informed citizen. So let me just give one example as something that might play into it. How the hell do you become an informed citizen today? What do you read? That's got to be one of the most common questions I get from young people. What do you read? Where is the truth? Where can I find it? Uh, I, I'm desperate to be informed, but I don't know who to trust. Yep. Right? Of okay, course. so that's a pretty key foundational question that stops people from being informed citizenry. Even if uh, even if 50 years ago we were kidding ourselves mm-hmm. to think that those three news networks were giving us... <laughs> of course. You know, but, at, but at least there was a sense of, uh, of shared... A shared understanding of truth, whether or not it was truth, that provided a basis for people to have logical discussions that led someplace. That's the the pillars that hold up logical discussions that lead someplace have been removed. I don't know how you replace that. So, again, it's the analysis part. How do you get up there and say, let me tell you what we all need to do when you're going, what the hell does this mean? Right. It's I'm analyzing and I'm looking. I'm going, I don't think I would trust anybody to tell me what's going on right now. You're absolutely right, because, I mean, if the, the problem is if they, we can't even agree on the actual evidence, forget about the interpretation, you know, because the interpretation... Well, well, I'll, tell you, and I'll tell you what's stupid. What's stupid is pretending that this is all because of recent events, 
right? I mean, and, th- and this is what drives me crazy. It's all about the current president or the current problem or the last president. Or, and you sit there and go, don't you understand? We are living in the comeuppance of probably, probably uh, changes that have started happening in the United States in, in, in high speed from the Second World War on. Changes in the global economy, changes in the United States position in the world. And I feel like you're seeing 70 years of that now playing out several generations later. I can't tell you what I see, but it kind of looks like it'd be interesting to get the 500-year perspective of our times right now and see how future historians sort of put our times right now in its historic place. You know, where do they tuck it into the Second World War? Where do they, you know, where, where do they, when did they decide we've gone from a republic to an empire if that ever happens? Um, you know, those are the kind of things I think about. I just want to see the history book from the future. Well, and that's what that's where where we are is so different from anything from the past. Whereas, you know, usually you can see cycles and continuity and all of that. And we may still see that to some degree. But there's also the issue that when you just consider, you know, pick somebody who was born 2,000 years ago and place them in a time machine and transport them a 1,000 years forward, will they notice differences? Yes, of course they will notice differences, but they can probably still recognize the world they're in. But if you pick somebody from the beginning of the 1800s and you time machine them down to today, so a much shorter time span, I would be hard-pressed to imagine that anything they touch around them is vaguely recognizable. Because so much, I mean, when you just consider purely as a technological level, the stuff that has changed in the last 150 years, from the fact that, you know, people, at least speaking of the United States, people used to be born in farms and lived in small communities of at most little town of a few thousands at most, uh, to instead urbanization and working for wages, further removed away from food production and being instead, you know, indus- industrial work and so on and so forth. You talk about inventions like you go down the list from electricity to the telephone to cars to airplanes to radio to TV, to internet, to, you know, just about everything that makes us our modern world is pretty much popped up in the last last 200 years, even less than that. So clearly, when the pace of change is so quick, the it's not that you have one little technological thing that changes everything, but then you have like a 200-year period to sort of digest it. You have one, and the next day you have another, and then another, and then another, and so the rules of the game kept getting rewritten, which is part of the reason why it's so there's the perception, at least, of things being so chaotic. Can the pace of change slow down? I was thinking about the civilizational stock market and wondering if you could ever get sort of a, a slump. You know, we've been on such a tear for 500, 600, 700 years. You wonder if it could ever slow down. And the other thing I often wonder about when it comes to um, sort of the progress of civilization Basically, the idea that that is there a point where if the pace of change doesn't slow down, we lose the ability to stay up with it. For example, uh, there are real world problems that the pace of change creates. You had brought up uh, the slower pace of change in earlier periods, right? So take somebody from 2000 years ago. The, the amount of time that a person's life experience is helpful and useful for a person back then is far longer than now because the plow that they've been using their whole life 
is probably little changed. Most of the things that they've learned how to do through experience over the ages, they just do better than they used to, and they haven't changed much. So the, the, the value of wisdom was at a premium, the value of life experience. Now, you get the feeling, don't you, when you have children and they get to be teenagers and they're already helping you with the latest technology devices, that that, win- that window of, of useful uh, experience and, and, and whatnot has shrunk dramatically. And as the pace of change speeds up, at what point are only the most cutting-edge people the only ones who can function as everyone is supposed to, right? My, my mother can't function anymore in society without a lot of help. What if that starts happening to us at 35? Right. Yeah, which is not out of the realm of possibilities considering uh, how quick things are changing, how quick new technologies are introduced, how foreign is to talk to somebody about what the world looked like before internet, not a million years ago, some 20 some years ago. So again, you're not talking a lifetime, you're talking a couple of decades at most, and then you see differences that are almost incomprehensible to somebody who didn't grow up with them. So, you know, I think I think of the kids, though, that we have today as like a guinea pig generation. I mean, I think we're really trying, you know, we talk about all of societies and, and, and the technological innovations. But but what effect and you alluded to this, what effect are all these innovations collectively having on us? Right. What what's it doing to our kids? Like I was having a conversation with the dad a while back and we were talking about what is the right age to let your kid have an Instagram account? Well, it's not like you can say, well, back when I was a kid, we didn't let anybody have them until we were 17. You got, there's no metrics, yeah, right, for exactly. any of this. Yep. And, and we have no long-term views where you can go, well, I remember a kid doing that, and they screwed his life up when he got an Instagram too young. I mean, all that stuff is just its one big loan experiment here, and I try to think about it a couple of generations from now, right? What's the natural progression of this? And I just, this is why, though, I do think that we're off the grid, speaking historically, and, and it's been something that's become more and more outside the normal pattern of human behavior. So if you think about hunters and gatherers before cities arose as being the natural pattern of human behavior during most of our existence, and then the growth of cities being quite a a change, and then the Industrial Revolution being more of a change, and then, you know, the, the technology. So in other words, we're at the highest levels that we've ever been of being as far away from our roots as we've ever been. How does that change us and how does that change the structures and framework of the societies we build to live in? And absolutely, because there's the macro. I hope Jared Diamond writes that book, by the way. I just asked the question. He's got to answer. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And some of it, you know, the answers are, the big answers are, you know, yeah, good luck finding them. Good luck, Jared Diamond, doing that. But the small answers that you will all have to figure out are just as complex. Because it's like what you were saying, for example, about social media. Forget a kid. I don't even know how to use social media. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, on one end, I gain so much from it, from interacting with people, people that I would have never met otherwise. But then on the other end, I find myself checking the damn thing like 25 times a day. So there's, there's clearly a spot where you're gaining a lot from it. And there's a spot where it's turning into an addiction that's completely unhealthy to your overall lifestyle. And well, collectively, what's it doing to the society? What's exactly. it doing to the political? How is it driving? I mean, just trying to deal with, with all of the entities out there that are just obsessed with likes and clicks and all these kinds of things has turned everything into a clickbait society at the expense, I think, of depth 
and nuance and all. I mean, if you if you have to read a wall of text to get context, but nobody's going to read a wall of text anymore, does that mean you get no context? Well, and that's where I guess, if I may, just because that's my job and I'm supposed to do it, so I'm supposed to bug about common sense and things like that. And by the way, it's a funny thing for me to do because on one end, I like you, so I just want you to do what makes you happy, you know? So I'm like, don't do common sense. It's like, I remember when we did the last episode together and we tackled what should have been a very easy historical question, like the whole uh, political spectrum, left-wing, right-wing. And man, based on some of the replies we got, you would have thought that we just murdered our mother and said something horrendous. You know, it was like so basic and even that get controversial and you have to deal with drama. So on one end, I don't want you to do common sense, you know, because I'm like, I like your lifestyle. I value the fact that you have a good life and I hope it continues that way. On the that's not, but 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 I want you to know that's not what it's not what it is. If I thought we could still make a difference, uh, talking about those things, a meaningful difference, I would still be doing it. The difference is though that that it's exactly what you said. People are we're past the listening stage and speaking to the people that already agree with you. I don't have as much of an interest in that maybe as some people, but there are ways to provide context and nuance and remind people about empathy and give people some sort of grading curve to understand how good they have it. And I think talking about the stories in the history show and whatnot provide us a a different way to have these discussions that doesn't prompt people to put up their defenses so quickly and allows you some time to have a discussion, which these days, as you said, it it was bad enough in the old days when you felt like you had to fight your way into a discussion, but the walls are up here. There is no fighting. You, you talk to your own people who think like you, and that's it. And I just True. think we have, in, in my case, I have so much, uh, so many other avenues where we can have these discussions. I'm just choosing something that I think will be more effective. On one end, I agree. Yes. On the other end, I think because uh, there are no places and there are no spaces for nuanced discussion and everything is so partisan and very much, you know, factions rule and the whole game. People who like you, they like you because they are attracted to the fact that you address topics in a way that no one else does, which is with nuance, which is not providing uh, quick sound bites of an answer of... Uh, uh, global warming, true, not true, you're never going to have that discussion where you're just purely going in, a, this is reality, deal with it, here is our slogan, let's march forward with this. It's always going to be a dance with what you do. It's always going to be, let's look at the evidence on one side. Wait, but let's look at it from a completely different angle. Okay, where does that leave you? Are you really that comfortable with that position? What about, you know, and your process of asking questions forces anybody, regardless of which position they come from, to think about it a little bit and maybe just be slightly more open to dialogue with somebody who has a different take on it. Now, of course, that's not for everybody. That's definitely not for the majority of people who crave and want the oversimplification of reality. But the fact that there are also so many people who like listening to you also tell you that there is an audience for that stuff that starve for somebody to play that role because all they ever get is the team A versus team B mentality. And, and after a while, it just feels pointless. You know, they don't want to engage on that level. I appreciate that. That you know, when when you get to be my age, those are the things that you re- that, that that provide some satisfaction in life. I know so many people that are dissatisfied with what life gave them, and they've never had the opportunity to have anybody say 
things as nice as what you just said to me. So <laughs> I, 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 no, I do. I, I really try to, to put these things in perspective and appreciate them. Cause when you meet people who've never had anybody say something nice like that to them, you realize how lucky you are. And I'm very fortunate. I appreciate that. I, I here's the thing. I, 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 this is why I never said that the show was ending because I, I, I want to leave the door open to having a discussion. The problem is, is I think that unless you get up, see here, I told a story once about my generation uh, uh, in, a, in a pep rally once, and none of, none of my class would participate in the pep rally, and that was how we were from, like, minute one. We were just a bunch of individuals who never bought into this group stuff and always played the devil's advocate. And I feel like that's kind of how I am politically, too, because I don't feel like anybody's on my team. Sure. Um, and they really are. I mean, I'm really just like a, you know, a religion of one, as I always say, and I'm the Pope. Um, and, and, and I feel like when you get up there in this climate and say, that there are all kinds of assumptions that people then make about you that are, you know, I mean, I just, I don't want to sit there and defend myself all the time because we live in a place where you can't think freely and say what you want without that meaning 9,000 different subsidiary things that in my case aren't true, right? So if you're going to be a free thinker, say, let's talk about this possibility. People think, well, what does that mean? Well, this must mean this about it. So you can't have those kinds of open discussions right now. So like I said, so I find that there are still ways to have them. You just have to approach them differently. And that's what I feel like I'm doing. I think what you're talking about at this point, and, and I gotta say, and this is something different that I haven't brought up before, but I do feel like it's becoming difficult as I get older to have discussions that always revert back to foundational questions, right? So you'll say, you'll give a piece of evidence and say, well, something like that coup that happened in Iran in 1953, and people are sitting there going, what coup? What, what happened in Iran? You, you can't, for me, that's just a piece of evidence in an argument I'm making about something else. But already your piece of evidence doesn't mean anything to a lot of these audience members. So do you have to do then a show on that so that next time you want to bring... In other words, I guess I'm, I'm aging myself out of the frames of reference, maybe, on, that, on those kind of questions. Um, that gets back to the context issue, though. I mean, to me, if you don't know the answers to those questions, can you be an informed citizen in this time and place? I don't know the answer to that. I'm wondering about it a lot, though. Well, that's my take on it, the, in general about communication, not just about history or politics or anything, but about communication as a whole. To me, the way, for example, academic language is, uh, is used, I find it terrible because, to me, the whole point of developing a great intellect, if you can call it such is then to have the ability to communicate with literally anyone. You know, whether uh, you are explaining a concept to your 95-year-old grandma or to a three-year-old, of course, the experience that these people have is different. Of course, the vocabulary that they have access to is different. Of course, all of that is different. But there's some basic human essence to it all that's not different, where you can, you know, you like, I think about, for example, how I raise my daughter, right? She's 10 years old now, and... There's something, like, every time when she's around other people who haven't met her, they're like, how old is she again? She's 10? She talks like she's 40 or something. She knows, how does she know so much? And it's like, because I didn't treat her like an idiot, pretty much. Not because, you know, we would have conversation where I would treat her like she's an adult, except that I understand she's not, so she doesn't have that vocabulary or that life experience. So I may break things down a little more, but ultimately, I still assume that you are a human being with a brain, so you can grasp stuff. You just, I just need to use the, my words carefully in the way I phrase them. That's it. And I find that to be true on most levels. That, you know, when I, when I teach classes, to me, 
whether you are interested in history or not is completely secondary. Whether you even know a damn thing about history or not is completely secondary. It's like, if you're a human being, you're probably passionate about certain things. Okay, so that's going to be my starting point. I'm going to find a way to tie whatever it is that I'm talking to to the kind of basic human questions that everyone can relate to and is passionate about. And to me, the job of a great communicator is doing that. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to dumb things down. I mean, what you said, I completely agree, right? It's like you want to bring up a reference that to you is obvious. It's a piece of evidence in itself. And somebody else has no idea what you're talking about. So what do you do with that? Um, in some cases, I would be tempted to say you use it anyway. And some of it is, you know, if you if they are following you 80% of the way and then they are missing some detail, that's great because it's just going to make them want to look into it more. And, you know, you're essentially giving them homework of like, hey, if it makes sense what I'm saying and I just brought up something that's completely foreign to you, jump on it, read up. Or in some cases, you can go into a, the quick down and dirty explanation in three minutes. But in other cases, it can just be like, hey, not... Not everybody's going to get every reference, and that's fine. You know, that's not even... Like, I love in, in History on Fire narratives to use uh, sometimes pop culture references. Some of them are going to be very clear to my audience. Others are going to be completely foreign because they haven't watched the movie or they don't know who that particular person is. That's okay. You know, it's part of, like, let's roll with it anyway. So I don't necessarily see that as, uh, as a problem in that regard. That may just be purely my take, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know, maybe I'm delusional about that. But that's sort of my, my feel on it, that is not a bad thing sometimes to throw out their things that haven't been fully explained already or that they are not part of the collective understanding of reality already. Well, let me suggest another possibility. We may, and, and, and look, there's two ways this could go. This could be, like we said, a stage. If you go back to 74, the uh, year that uh, Watergate uh, comes to fruition and all that, it's very passionate. People weren't listening to each other much then either. Uh, but I think you could ask a legitimate question whether or not either we've lost the ability and maybe lost the ability due, due to um, some of these tools and the five-second sound bites and all this kind of thing to have the kind of political discussions that it is assumed citizens will have in a system like ours. Um, I, there, there was an interesting book on democracy that I read once for the ancient Greek version, and they were asking about assumptions. Like, did the ancient Greeks think that average people could make decisions about specialized questions? Things like that, right? In other words, so, so, so how did they answer that question, right? Could, could average people who don't understand the specifics, can they get the voting right? And I think if I'm you know, going from memory here, the attitude was that the Greeks assumed, we would call it today, common sense, right? There was a certain amount of ability to, even if you didn't know the right answer, figure out, okay, well, this guy's of this opinion, so I know he, you know, in other words, to do some calculations, a little algebra, and try to figure out a, a backdoor way to find out what's for X. I don't know. Let, let's, let's play it a different way. Let me ask this a different way, because I've, I've thought about this. Is there a capsizing moment? Because everybody understands that voters, for example, can contain people that know what's going on. Sure. And they contain people that don't know what's going on. Yes. Uh, in every system in the world that, that allows voters to have a say. 
um, we remember those of us who know our American history that early elections were full of people that politicians would give hard cider to, and we would serve all kinds. And and Edgar Allan Poe may have died from voting too many times and getting you know <laughs> alcohol too many times. Right. So so I mean this we all understand that this has always been part of things. But let's play with the idea that there's a number that we always hit below minimum, you know, above minimum standards. So let's say if you have to at least have fifty percent of your of your voting population be informed or the system falls apart. Well, what happens if you get below that point? What does that system look like, right? If we said today, what are the chances we're at, you know, at the capsizing point, or what are the chances we can see the capsizing point in the distance? What's the capsizing point, right? Uh, These are the kind of societal questions that I'm not so sure haven't bedeviled societies forever, as we, you and I both know our ancient Greek stuff pretty well. I mean, the the way the citizens of Athens sometimes uh, decided that the government should go do things, sit there and go, well, that's not the intelligence of the masses right there, is it? So uh, I'm asking some basic questions that run against the grain of my political beliefs. I'm a Jeffersonian, agrarian, democracy kind of guy, sort of. And uh, the kinds of questions I'm asking are are too elitist for my taste. So I'm denying them at the moment. But I'm wondering a lot about our ability to play the role of of informed citizenry in our country right now, given that we may have to step it up and be more informed than our ancestors and put more work into being informed than the ancestors who, if they read the New York Times back in 1974, could justifiably call themselves informed. Good luck doing that today and calling yourself informed and having anyone else believe it. Well, but that's where I think my last piece of, uh, you know, in my speech as I go to try to dig uh, old Cincinnatus from farming the field and saying, please come back and save the Republic, (laughs) which is what I'm doing here with you. (laughs) My last piece of evidence on that is precisely because of what you said, I think... I think many people are alienated when all they hear is like partisans screaming on one side, partisans screaming on another, and they know that they can't trust anybody because everybody's just trying to sell them something. Then even more people will be kind of ignorant because they are just going to be like, okay, I throw my hands up. I can't figure it out. It's too much. Everybody seems nasty, weird, and mean. What's the point? You know? We are instead what you do, which is ask a lot of questions, not necessarily scream a slogan and tell everyone to to follow, but you ask a lot of questions. Eventually, you know, you do have your position, you do take stances. It's not just purely ask questions forever, but there are stances that are flexible stances. There are stances that are willing to change as soon as you take into account another piece of evidence. There are stances that say, yes, this is how I feel, but... Let's not forget about this piece of the puzzle that I haven't quite figured out yet. That process, if anything, can ever get more people more involved, more aware of things. It's precisely in doing it in that fashion. So, Daniele, but you know, that's as old as ancient Greece, too. That's just the Socratic method. And, and the reason that I try to be flexible is because if you can't pass your own Socratic questioning test, you know, then, then you have your own problems, right? But I mean, it's just forcing people to defend the questions layer by layer by layer till you get to the root causes. But there's some patience required there and some willingness to make the trip, right? Absolutely. To get to the destination, you have to be willing to to say, okay, I'll sit down and listen to some other person's point of view or some or something I don't or, or or be forced to defend myself to the point where it becomes uncomfortable a little bit. I feel like I'm in that politically a bit myself and maybe came to it through a a list of of layers of Socratic questioning also, right? I'm looking around our society now and saying, what do I see? 
What does it mean? And how do we, how do we get out of this mess is what I was going to say. But there's, there's, there's foundational questions even below that, that I'm trying to deal with. And I'm trying to wonder about Americans. Do we want to have a country anymore? Right. That's that's foundational question number one. And it's a crazy question. But do people who hate other Americans in this country want to live in the same country with them anymore? And if you do, what is your plan for coexisting with them? Right. I mean, we can hate them all that we want. But if you want a country and they're going to be in it, what's the plan for living in a, in a way that isn't what we have now, but continually spiraling into worse territory? So, I mean, when we talk about the deep questions and the, and the Socratic ones, I'd love to have that one answered. I'd love to have more people asking it. Well, and I think that's exactly the point, that if all there is out there is reinforcing one group of people wanting to wipe out another group of people, then yeah, you got a problem. If there are not just your voice, because it's also unfair to just put it on you and that's it, it's like, Dan, save us all. In the meantime, I'll go to the beach and screw everybody. It's like, no, there has to be a plurality of voices that are doing exactly this game of like, forcing people to, forcing is probably the wrong word, but fascinating people, because that's really what you're doing. It's not, you're not forcing anybody. It's fascinating people, captivating people's attention into wanting them to think about it a little less stereotypically, a little less in black and white terms. You know, if I think about like one of the great diseases of humanity is the addiction to binary thinking. It's just that black and white mentality. Anybody that on any level, whether purely philosophical, whether through great storytelling, whether by telling history, whether by discussing modern politics, is able to help people break out from that mold and look at things in a slightly different fashion, I think is doing a fantastic job in terms of what can be done to affect human beings all around us. Boy, that is the nicest guilt trip anybody's ever given me in my entire life, Daniel. <laughs> I think about it a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, how that is the can nicest I... guilt trip I've ever had laid on me. <laughs> how can I give that a better guilt trip? It doesn't quite work last time. Let me think of it. Okay, it's like I'm going I, I, back I will, to... I, I will say this, and it's, it's an interesting way to think. I think sometimes about the Khrushchev uh, note that he sent Kennedy during the height of the missile crisis where he was talking about, you know, Mr. President, you should not pull now on the knot of war because we may never be able to untie it if it gets any tighter. And I feel the same way about the hate we feel towards our our, our fellow people. I, I say Americans, but it's not like the rest of the world doesn't understand this right now, too, um, where we're at each other's throats, and yet, theoretically, we have to live together, and we would love to live together in some sort of um, I, I would think in our own lives, some peacefulness, some sense of community, some sense that everybody didn't hate everybody else. Um, how do you untie the knot of hate that we have going? And I got to tell you, it, it, it does lead me down that road to the to the purveyors of nonviolence. There was a, a book talking about how powerful uh, nonviolence is. And you always think of it as such a passive, um, a pacifistic sort of tendency, but it's nothing like that. It's one of those tendencies that has the ability to untie these Rubik's Cube type positions we put ourselves into, you really have to sort of forgive your fellow countrymen and open yourself up to not hating them, even if you hate everything they're about, or we're not going to get to a place where we're all happier. So I don't know how much we're going to decide that we all need to be unhappy in order to be on the right side of these issues, or how much we can let somebody exist with a completely warped way of thinking and a hateful way of frame of mind and still 
have them be our neighbors. I mean, I think we're going to have to try to figure these things out. And I think the only way to do it is it sounds sounds very religious, doesn't it? But we're going to have to forgive each other, maybe. So did I hear it right? I said the only way to do it is for Dan Carlin to start common sense again. Okay, I got it. Thank you. Perfect. I'm glad we yeah, came okay. to that conclusion. All right. That was... All right. I brought I brought religion up. I brought guilt up. This is sounding like a very good old uh, Irish Catholic kind of show. Uh, <laughs> awesome. So, anything else you want to throw out there beside sweet folks who still no, read books? No, listen, man. I love might. you. Thank you for letting your audience know about the book. I hope they like the book. I feel the same way about the book. I feel about all the podcasts. I have no idea how it is. Uh, we, we put some love into it, though. We have the the recipe that is the stuff I do translated through a literary lens, which, by the way, was the hardest part of this whole thing because everything I do is so audio based that that shoving the square peg into the round hole that is uh, writing was was an interesting learning experience. But uh, I I think it's the kind of book that you can pick up and put down and and that doesn't answer any any questions but the questions themselves are some of the most important i think we face i love that thank you so much dan this was fun to chat as usual as usual thank you buddy for having me on